thank all of you for joining us in our uh, ongoing second reading of Anti-Oedipus. Today we're going to be diving into uh, section 2.2, the three texts of Freud. Uh, as always, we are live on Discord. If you wish to uh, join us after listening to this, you're more than welcome to. Uh, anyone who's in the room at any point is free to unmute, type a question, toss their stuff in here. I'm glad that we have a handful of people that we do uh, who are from previous readings and uh, a few who I recognize from uh, just generally knowing the stuff because I will be very frank. This is the section where it starts turning for me. I have a decent grasp of the beginning, but I do not have the background in Freud. So I'm glad a few of you are here. Super, super, super. Um, this is also a little bit of a longer uh, section than the other sections we've been reading. This one hits 12 pages. So I'm gonna do my best to stay on a nice clip as we make our way through this. Uh, if at any point uh, I'm going too quickly or you want to spend more time again, I'm here until we finish. At some point, if we only get halfway, I may kill it for the day if we're like far enough in and we'll just continue next week. Uh, we'll see what we do. So three texts of Freud. Shut up, Jack. It is easy to see that the problem is, first of all, practical, that it concerns above all else the practice of the cure. For the frenzied Oedipalization process takes form precisely at the moment when Oedipus has not yet received its full theoretical formulation as the nuclear complex and leads a marginal existence. The fact that Schreber's analysis was not in vivo distracts, detracts nothing from its exemplary value from the point of view of practice. In this text, 1911, Freud encounters the most formidable of questions. How does one dare reduce to the paternal theme a delirium so rich, so differentiated, so divine as the judge's, since the judge in his memoirs makes only very brief references to the memory of his father? On several occasions, Freud's text marks the extent to which he felt the difficulty. To begin with, it appears difficult to assign as cause of the malady, even if only an occasional cause, an outburst of homosexual libido, directed at Dr. Fleschig's person. But when we replace the doctor with the father and commission the father to explain the god of delirium, we ourselves have trouble following this ascension. We take liberties that can be justified only by the advantages they afford us in our attempt to understand the delirium. Yet the more Freud states with such scruples, the more he thrusts them aside and sweeps them away with a firm and confident response. And this response is double. It is not my fault if psychoanalysis attests to a great monotony and encounters the father everywhere, in flashing in the God, in the Son. It is the fault of sexuality and its stubborn symbolism. Furthermore, it is not surprising that the father returns constantly in current deliriums in the most hidden and least recognizable guises, since he returns in fact everywhere and more visibly in religious religions and ancient myths, which express forces and mechanisms eternally active in the unconscious. It should be noted that Judge Schreber's destiny was not merely that of being sodomized, while still alive, by the rays from heaven, but also that of being posthumously oedipalized by Freud. From the enormous political, social, and historical content of Schreber's delirium, not one word is retained, as though the libido did not bother itself with such things. Freud invokes only a sexual argument which consists in bringing about the union of sexuality and the familial complex, and a mythological argument which consists in positing the adequation of the productive force of the unconscious and the edifying forces of myths and religions. 
immediately we dive uh, essentially right into uh, Judge Schreber. Judge Schreber is a, a more famous case from Freud of a judge who experienced uh, significant, we'll say, uh, delusions, uh, schizophrenia, and a lot of problems. Someone here will be able to dive a little bit more into it. The uh, He's the one who famously had the solar anus. Uh, you'll hear the term solar anus around our server, and we're going to say it, I have a feeling, a lot more in this section. Uh, this opening paragraph, though, uh, is fairly simple and talks through a handful of things. Uh, one of the terms they use here is delirium. We talked about this yesterday in our submission of chapter four and schizoanalysis. Uh, the nature of delirium, the large social uh, sort of stratosphere of signs and beliefs and representations that people uh, take in, that delirium that they're a part of, they say here very clearly is this hyper-complex, large-scale, incredible thing. And Freud essentially is flattening it to be this father. It, against, obviously, his own, as they say, and if you read it, it's accurate, his own misgivings about doing such a thing, where he's like, well, this isn't really the father, and neither is this, and neither is this. But that's okay, because everything's the father, is essentially the joke they're making here, as I understand it. And uh, someone who has more experience with this, or better understanding, I'd love to hear from you. So, but, so the short version is, this is my understanding of what they're saying here, because Freud, it's clear as you read, and uh, we did a quick reading of uh, the text originally the first time we went through this. And it is clear the way that Freud writes about this. He doesn't just like draw very clear basic lines. It's like, hey, here's, look at George Schreber spent so much time on his father. Jesus, that's a fucking thing I need to look at. Instead, it's pretty much the opposite where he barely mentions his dad and instead has all of these things that he references, which Freud doesn't even really talk about at all, throwing out most of the conversation in lieu of these very few things which he then extrapolates out, which is, it's this thing, again, the, the assumption that Freud's going in by saying that, uh, I think, how do they put it here? Um, uh, edifying forces of myths and religions that Freud goes in with is ultimately how he sees Judge, Judge Schreber uh, through the thing. I think they also, uh, the last couple of sentences, they really bring up like, Freud invokes only a sexual argument, and then they, they go into the meaning of that because uh, I think it was early, later in chapter one or in the previous section in chapter two, they talk a lot about how like Freud is going to say the libido can only be sexual and cannot uh, invest into the social field, which is why Freud had to create like all of these representations in order to like explain the investment of desire in the social field itself. That's a great point. They did, uh, I think it was actually in this previous uh, section we were reading. It's, it's exactly what they said, that uh, the, the nature of how Freud saw is that it stopped essentially internally, that sexuality is all it was. And so that's why he invented the representation. That's a really, uh, really good way to put it. Um, and that is what I think they're talking about here. Uh, yes, one question that I think uh, already men mentioned in another session, but do Deleuze and Guattari actually, um, let's say, Laid a uh, placed a conception of the Oedipal idea at 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 Freud also from a uh, time perspective. Do they do they see do they recognize some kind of change around Freud or do they just use Freud as an example? I think their argument is that Freud kind of when they say like uh, so as I recall it's like Freud discovers Oedipus but in discovering Oedipus it's something that 
all the conditions have allowed to even be created, right? So it's not like Freud himself kind of comes up with it out of nowhere. Yeah, it's not like he just invents Oedipus out of the void. There's a way in which that there's a contingency that makes Oedipus possible. And that psychoanalysis is going to, especially with Freud, kind of formalize that and take it further. Um, and even here, you can see they're expanding on the point from the previous section, where Freud, in the beginning of his work, isn't that big on Oedipus. It's only as he gets toward, I think, like the 1920s that he starts getting, he starts using this method more and more. Yeah, it's not even a thing, uh, if you go back, it's not even a thing he really talked about very often. I mean, at all, even in, if you take like all of his collected works, it's not like they're called Freud's Oedipus. It's like this one thing he talked about on occasion. But uh, to, to follow off Jack, the, the nature of Oedipus uh, really does follow, as they say, the nuclear family here. But the nuclear family is a contingent thing that exists due to the nature of capital and economy and social factors. And uh, Freud discovers, and I, I'm doing air quotes, Freud discovers this. Um, but the way that he phrases it and how he handles it isn't just like, well, this is weird. This this is It's much more of, hey, there's representations I need to create. And then because of how capital operates, capital actually basically runs like mad with it and it becomes just sort of easily transmissible because of the nature of how capitalist representation works, which we'll get into later and we've talked about just a bit, but uh, that's kind of, I think, how they're doing it. So it's, for them, the, they actually laud a lot of Freud's talk. It, the idea of the libido, despite how Freud didn't take it all the way, like is a huge deal that this idea that people have like this intrinsic energy and force that is within them to do things that was new and that was a huge deal for Deleuze and Guattari both because it's kind of the foundation of their entire materialist view of the world in psychiatry. So um, it's a combination of all that. Well, you have to be careful though. It's not intrinsic. Yeah, maybe the wrong word there. It's the wrong word. Yeah, I, I, I'm nitpicking, but uh, right, because if it's intrinsic, it's really problematic because it's no longer a flow then. It's no longer impersonal. Um, right, I, more, more I'm just saying that the there is a fount like that, that force of libido is the thing. Right. There's a sort of, a, I, I, I don't know if there's, I mean, I mean, some may argue that this is a form of vitalism. I guess this is a much more, um, it would be a much more interpretive debate that I don't know how, if, if, if people want to go into, but, um, one thing that I do find interesting about this paragraph right now, the one that we're looking at specifically there's a discussion on representation, and this is something that will go on throughout the whole book. Um, really, I mean, one one way we can look at this understanding of representation, something that Deleuze and Guattari will really problematize about representation, is that it can't explain it can't explain genesis, it can't explain genealogy, it can't explain why things change, and that's what distinguishes a representation from a sort of ontological process that Deleuze and Guattari want to underline, the process of becoming, or affirming the being of becoming. And so, oh, sorry, someone wants to say something? No, no, I'm, I'm trying to move on, because it, uh, you're about to get into stuff they're about to discuss in the next paragraph, too, so. Yeah, but, I, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I just want to say one thing about, like, the history of, of the Oedipal that was brought up a moment ago, because obviously, um, what uh, what Freud really did was like codify the Oedipal right into like something like 
he he made it like a code that we could refer to and we can't go back to before he did that so any any analysis that we did of things before freud would be tainted by our knowledge of freud the codifying odopolization and living in society you know developed from that codification and so really it, it almost doesn't matter i like analyzing freud is always going to be relevant to to the odopol at any point in history because of that cool uh Varun, did you want to continue to say anything before I move on? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I did want to. I was trying to at least transition to the next paragraph, but uh, one of the things I was talking about was, um, well, what Freud is. There's a deep sort of irony in what Elizabeth Tari are talking about. Freud is trying to explain. Well, he's trying to explain. One way to look at the Oedipus complex, uh, it's it's a form of subjectivation, right? How subjects are produced in. Uh, in relations, and so the Oedipus complex is a stage that you go through. Then, depending on how you go through that stage, will de- depend who your subjectivity is. Um, but but then there's another problem: if you're not, if the Oedipus complex can explain genealogy, if it's just a representation and not a genealogical concept, how can you still explain something like subjectivation? And I think that's the thrust of what they're getting at here with the with that with the whole notion of well, the irony of representation, really. I mean, that's, I think that's spot on. Uh, thank you. Um, I will continue to uh, the next paragraph. Uh, and here they're referring this this last bit. Uh, Freud invokes a sexual argument, a mythological argument, which consists in positing the adequation of the productive force in the unconscious. Uh, Ken, please start typing. It's Jung. This latter argument is very important, and it is not by chance that here Freud declares himself in agreement with Jung. In a certain way, this agreement subsists after their break. If the unconscious is thought to express itself adequately in myths and religions, taking into account, of course, the work of transformation, there are two ways of reading this adequation. But they have in common the postulate that measures the unconscious against myth, and that from the start substitutes mere expressive forms for the productive formations. The basic question is never asked, but cast aside. Why return to myth? Why take it as the model? The supposed adequation can then be interpreted in what is termed anagogical fashion toward the higher, or inversely in analytical fashion towards the lower, relating the myth to the drives. But since the drives are transferred from myth, traced from myth with the transformations taking into account, what we mean is that starting from the same postulate Jung is led to restore the most diffuse and spiritualized religiosity, whereas Freud is confirmed in his most rigorous atheism. Freud needs to deny the existence of God as much as Jung needs to affirm the existence of the divine in order to interpret the commonly postulated adequation. But to render religion unconscious or the unconscious religion religious still amounts to injecting something religious into the unconscious and what would Freudian analysis be without the celebrated guilt feelings ascribed to the unconscious? I can't typing out here. Uh, it's it's no it's no coincidence that I can now talk. Um, wonderful. So, like I like their critique a lot, and I think it's necessary um, because uh, <laughs> because um, I don't know. Uh, young stuff got reabsorbed into like new agey stuff um, 
so I, I totally see where they're getting um, sort of this reification of myth as some sort of uh, substance um, that that myths that drives come from myths, uh, but that's not how he puts it. Um, even when talking talking about uh, the process of the archetype, he says that it's it's that it like one that you would put point to or whatever is just a representation of a process of drive like that's how he puts it um and um his the way he understands myth as a process uh you know i really found a great articulation of it in Schelling's historical critical introduction to the philosophy of mythology um, they don't exactly line up, but they're really close, especially the way that Schelling talks about um, what prehistorical time would be like. And then that gets all strange and is no longer like a time. Um, but uh, yeah, so for young myths are, are representations. They are portraits of, of a creative activity, if you will. Um, and, and is it fair to say, uh, because they use this term a lot later, and I just want to start saying it now, uh, the idea of the unconscious being a stage where representations and repressed memories play against each other, uh, our ancestral past, this uh, place that these things interact, and this is what causes our understanding of the world or how we view it. No. So, no. so archetypes are not inherited ideas. Um, it's just a it's just a possibility and then hard stop. Um, the way you would inherit uh, symbols or ideas is through the present machinations of culture. So, you know, we get a, a white Jesus Christ who's constantly reproduced in, in commodities and whatnot. Um, but if you were to burn it all to the ground, and, you know, this is young stance, if you were to burn it all to the ground, the images would change, but the things that they sort of circle around would be um, very similar. So, but what? Yes, what that I, I, is, I'm more. I'm more asking specifically because they talk often, and their their reference is basically to a handful of types of unconscious. One of those is the that of the uh, uh, symbolic unconscious that's structured like a language, Lacanian style. Uh, and then they refer to the stage and uh, the play acting of representations and the that setup that feels like a Jungian reference whenever they, they say that. Yeah, so, I mean, whenever they say that, what it reminds me of is uh, Jung's, you know, active imagination tool, where that's kind of what you do. You, you name and give a personage, personage to... Um, so, for example, if you have, uh, like compulsive trauma affects or whatever like like where you lay at night or something and all of a sudden you just cringe because you get this feeling and then and then comes the representations of the feeling or whatnot and his active imagination technique you would give that affect a representation and then you would dialogue with this representation and then you would carry the story forward so so the difference between Jung and Freud is Freud there would find the would try to reduce that to its psychological elements back to the mother back to the instance in which the trauma happened for Jung in his active imagination technique you carry the story forward 
and you and you thereby change it. Right, and I think uh, to uh, advertisements uh, point, the I'm I'm trying to think of uh, when they're contrasting and they're using these allegories for what the unconscious is. Uh, for Deleuze and Guattari, it's a factory. It's a it's a production line. For mm -hmm. Lacan, it's a it's a you know symbolic chains uh, crisscrossing. Uh, for Jung, the short version would be a stage of archetypes uh, that are played out that we've learned through our, you know, absorbing of social. It, it's a different mentality. It's that of representation being the base level of our unconscious. I mean, it's, as a very short version, it's the use of representation as that base level of the unconscious. Right? You know, I'm, yeah, sort of, but I'm going to have to keep on uh, for as long as Jung is attributed to saying that the unconscious is mythological. I'm going to have to keep on defending him because he does use myths as tools and whatnot, but that's not what he says the nature of the psyche is. In fact, he, he says that himself he can't even say what the nature of the psyche is, and he uses psychoid as an adjective to describe this unrepresentable factory. Let me uh, hop in here because... So if I understand correctly, Deleuze and Guadri are making a methodological critique here. Mm -hmm. So if I follow them, when they talk about Freud's atheism, what I think they're talking about here is that we can understand these parts of the unconscious, which for Freud are going to be things like the id, the ego, the superego, right? Um, just at a basic level, right? But that's going to be something we deal with in the unconscious. And then we can kind of understand that in relation to myth. Right where myth is kind of the the expression of the unconscious in that manner. Whereas for Jung, I think what Deleuze and Guattari are saying is that instead of doing like kind of deducing it from the id and the ego, right? I think what um, Deleuze and Guattari mean is that, or rather inducing from the id and the ego and so on. I think they're instead saying that what Jung is going to do is he's going to take myth and use that to kind of deduce his aspects of the unconscious. And this is all going to be through the mutual strong, um, string of expression. So we're dealing with the unconscious through an expression, and that expression becomes kind of the representation of the unconscious, as opposed to, for Deleuze and Guadri, the more fundamental point of, you know, instead of asking what it is through this expression, right, kind of like almost a phenomenological point perhaps, why don't we look at um, what's being produced in the production method? Is that kind of, um, does that sound right, Ken? It does, but it still sounds like a difference in semantics, sort of. Like, so Guattari, so Deleuze and Guattari would say that a, a machine is a representable or something like this. And that we're working on the, the level of uh, production. Um, yeah, and that's why what I'm, I'm getting at there too is with Jung's idea of the numinous, right? If I follow, there's the 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 unconscious has this unknowable part. If and I think you were um, just suggesting as much earlier, and so we kind of work with it through the way it expresses itself, and those expressions being um, symbolic, right? And then we can, I think that even goes further, right? Where like Jung's concepts themselves kind of take on a representational form for uh, later Jungians. But I mm. think that's their move is that because of the numinous quality, this is kind of why I compare with phenomenology or at least like old phenomenology in that sense. But 
in doing that, right, we can't really talk about the unconscious and its production because we're going to have to deal with um, something different, right, which is not the unconscious in itself, but the unconscious as it gets expressed through myth, right, and then myth becomes the basis for, like, the um, like the deductive process and that for Jungian concepts. Is that about right? Yeah, I mean, that sounds that sounds good. Um, so it, it's like a take on modality. So they wouldn't see any value in sort of having a conversation with yourself and 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 like uh, they wouldn't see any value in like a sort of exposure therapy. Right. Um, where you instead of trying to like uh, instead of trying to deny these negative affectations, uh, you know, immediately experience negative affectations, a place and working through them, they instead want to go directly to the social sources uh, that uh, produce the the material possibility for these affectations to occur in the first place. So like, uh, you know, war and, and famine and whatnot, um, and power structures. So yeah, that seems to be a big difference, uh, that that's their primary aim instead of like, um, instead of like any sort of, uh, scope on, on symptoms, if you will. To make a final point off of that, it's going to be com- it, it is going to be different. So, like for Deleuze and Guattari, you know, you you notice they don't really get into the self very much here, right? So, like they're not going to be deal dealing with like the self. Um, they're going to be talking about like a, and we'll see this as we go further into the book, where like subjectivity and um, even what Vroom was saying, like sub- um, subjectivation, right? There's a way in which we are produced, right, in relation to desiring machines. And this is kind of trying to focus at like a molecular level right here for the moment, where that kind of like self-analysis, you would be trying to understand how different aspects of an assemblage, right? So whatever you're working with, um, the the way that those are flowing, uh, the flows that those are engaged with and the connections and breaks that are happening there as produce the disjunctions and as those produce the subjectivities before those partial objects, right? Because that subjectivity is going to be part of um, that third synthesis that moves through all these partial objects. So yeah, and that's a bit different. Really, yeah, that's really interesting though, because I see a, a really nice bridge there. Um, because the way young talks about a symbol and you know conceives of a symbol in his work is totally different than uh the way freud talks about what is symbolic and from uh from lacan's symbolic register it's just a completely different conception altogether um and it is used like a partial object uh that you can invest in and then be reinvested in um, and he says this precisely because the symbol does not, is not disclosing any formal meaning. It, the symbol is always um, reflecting something that we do not know, like heart period. Um, so in that way, the symbol is like one of these machines. Um, but uh, 
but it, it it still has the baggage of the word symbol, right? And and I think machine might be more uh, it might have more appropriate connotations. To close the discussion, it's not the word; it's the method, right? And the ontology that comes with that method. We'll we'll wait. Uh, feel free to type it, and uh, we'll figure it out. <clears throat> but you can absolutely anyone is free to ask questions. I'm going to read the next paragraph. Uh, oh, we'll give Albert Eisman a second. He's typing up. So uh, we'll give that a second. Uh, how do desiring machines apprehend the mythological? Oh, they, they, well, I mean, this is a whole thing. <laughs> I think half of the book is kind of answering that. Um, to give a very short version, the mythological are essentially large-scale representations that are part of the social sphere and delirium that are representations visited upon us and then are basically placed on the body without organs and cause uh, paralogisms and other issues that desiring machines try to attach to or are laid onto on the body without organs as a response to this uh, that becomes more prescriptive and paranoiac rather than uh, the other way of schizo. It's a very short version of it. Most of the book is about this. If anyone has a better quick answer, I'd love to hear it. It So the short answer is it depends. I mean, there is an element of the, like we're seeing here, there's a whole methodological criticism of mythology, right? where for Freud, mythology has this edifying um, explanation of the unconscious, right? Um, where, and then like the contrast with Jung, where it's kind of, right, because the you're dealing with kind of a numinous thing, you use mythology to kind of represent it, right? So there's an obvious methodological critique there. For Deleuze and Watery, I think they're going to, I don't know if mythology always has to be representational but the way we engage it really matters and so if we're going to use methodology we're going to use a methodology to understand the unconscious through mythology right then we've already seen two stark criticisms of that kind of methodology mythology is representation representation should be in service of desiring machines not control them that's a the problem with oedipus is it very much places itself as the primacy and control uh, I'm going to start now to the next paragraph uh, before we continue too long and spend the next two hours there. What came to pass in the history of psychoanalysis? Freud held to his atheism in heroic fashion, but all around him, more and more, they respectfully allowed him to speak. They let the old man speak, ready to prepare behind his back the reconciliation of the churches and psychoanalysis, the moment when the church would train its own psychoanalysts and when it would become possible to write in the history of the movement, so even we are still pious. Let us recall Marx's great declaration. He who denies God does only a second thing, for he denies God in order to posit the existence of man, to put man in God's place, the transformation taken into account. But the person who knows that the place of man is entirely elsewhere does not even allow the possibility of a question to subsist concerning an alien being, a being placed above man and nature. He no longer needs the mediation of myth. He no longer needs to go by way of this mediation, the negation of the existence of God, since he has attained those regions of an auto-production of the unconscious, where the unconscious is no less atheist than orphan. Immediately atheist, immediately orphan. And doubtless, an examination of the first argument would lead us to a similar conclusion. By joining sexuality to the familial complex, by making Oedipus into the criterion of sexuality in analysis, 
the test case of orthodoxy par excellence. Freud himself posited the whole of social and metaphysical relations as an afterward or a beyond that desire was incapable of investing immediately. He then became rather indifferent to the fact that this beyond derives from the familial complex through the analytical transformation of desire, or is signified by it in an anagogical symbolization. So, I mean, we're all good with the first part, right? Is that there's the, ir- the irony of like the, the Freudian atheism in a sense that is still engaging with the kind of, um, you know, it's sort of erecting the kind of religion of uh, psychoanalysis here, yeah. Or at least if it's not, then there's a way in which kind of a religious element of say society is erecting these kind of psychoanalytic churches, yeah. Um, I, have, I have one quick question, sorry. Because, please, um, go for it. Uh, just starting to understand the last few sentences. This beyond desire is the idea of the state that, so from a Freud perspective, this this beyond is the idea that you can reach a state where you have control over your desire or something. Is is that what they mean with the beyond? Like, because Freud said something along those lines, right? Could you read the um, the passage you're looking at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, by joining sexuality of the familial complex by making Oedipus into a criterion of sexuality and analysis, the test of orthodoxy par excellence, Freud himself uh, positive the whole of social and metaphysical relations as an afterward or a beyond that desire was incapable of investing immediately. And, and, I, and I feel like I almost get what that beyond is, but maybe someone can clarify that a little bit because then I think I understand the paragraph better. Yeah, this is a great question. So the first part is kind of clear, right? Freud's making the move to take sexuality and join it with the familial, right? So sexuality is otherwise kind of this impersonal aspect, right? That kind of affects people and objects. Now it's getting kind of triangulated into the familial, right? It's getting contained, if you like. This is happening... um, through like the central point of Oedipus, right? So the Oedipal triangle allows for this kind of container to happen, but also the familial um, is no less um, important there. So right there, we have the first move. Next, Freud is going to say for Deleuze and Guattari, right? The whole of social metaphysical relations are an afterward, right? So the metaphysical aspect, the ontological aspect of desire of the unconscious, um, and of, shall we say, like whatever's involved there. So here we would say partial objects and different machines. For Freud, this is going to at least be something post hoc, right? So desire and the familial happened before all of this, right? So it's almost an ontological, like, I might suggest it's kind of an ontological fallacy because you're saying, right, all this is going on and then the metaphysics happens, right? So you're almost putting, like, if we're talking about ontology, you're making it secondary to what's happening. So basically he assumes a sort of metaphysical framework and then afterwards uh, says, hey, that's the metaphysical framework. You see, like, it's uh, so it's kind of like a circle, circle logic is basically what they're saying, or? Yeah, it's kind of like a move of making, I mean, there are ontological arguments in this methodology for Freud, right? Deleuze and Guadagno are saying, you're acting as though there aren't, and whatever there are, 
are after your analysis, right? So this is like saying the familial is going to produce the metaphysical here. You follow me? And in this sense, then there's a problem, kind of like Vroom was saying, where like, well, but what about the ontological genesis of all this? How can you make an ontogenesis after the fact? Right, to give one clear example of the, the problem here. Yeah, I think it's uh, Freud's sort of critique of Jung, which they're referencing here, and they bring up quite a bit uh, later in the book, um, is, is basically saying that, uh, you know, I'm just going to quote Holland, it's easier. Uh, Freud's critique of Jungian interpretation of symbolism and myth and tragedy is right, but only half right. Uh, quote, rather than referring symbolic representations to determinate objectities and objective social conditions, Deleuze and Guattari explained, Freud refers them to the subjective and universal essence of desire as libido. This is good. However, he then proceeds to draw on myth and tragedy to impose his own universal interpretation, the Oedipus complex, on the workings of the unconscious. Uh, again, his critique of Jung is saying mythology uh, doesn't run things. There's this other stuff that runs things. It's uh, this other stuff. It doesn't start with representation. And uh, that's the, the difficulty is then he then turns around and creates mythology that he says is determinate. Uh, and it's that, that nature of representation being determinate that they're absolutely taking issue with because it is not. Um, uh, to quote, uh, in fact, dream and fantasy are to myth and tragedy as private property is to public property, uh, which is a very direct uh, critique, very direct. So to, to put it very simply, and, and I know this is because I feel like that that's what they often say, but also in this paragraph, they're basically saying that the the way that Freud is uh, forming his ideas is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Is that correct to say? Yes, it's it's a it's an apparatus that renders itself true and pushes itself forward. Yes, and and that's where the irony with the religion is. Yes, I okay. I believe so. That's how I that's how I read it. Got it. Mm, kind of yeah. I mean, with the okay. self-fulfilling prophecy, like, kind of. I, I see what you mean, Self-fulfilling prophecy may be the wrong words. The intention there is to say that it's an apparatus that reproduces itself no matter what. And that is the nature of Oedipus, is that Oedipus is a reproductive apparatus in itself for the unconscious as a representational object. For sure, that is their critique of it. I think there's uh, something else that I'm, I'm reading in here, particularly with the statement about replacing God with man in the they're kind of making like echoing a similar statement that that Foucault would make later, right? About um, humanism, where they're saying like to assert an essential being or essence to humans and and hold that aloft it is the same mistake that we make when we elevate God to that status as well, or any transcendence, like as opposed to eminence in general. Yeah, you're talking about the middle part of the paragraph where they're talking about Marx and the the way that God and man play into that, yeah. Because a, a pretty heavy element of this text, right, is that there isn't like a an, an essential notion to like desire or, or what it is like. Like there isn't like a unified, quantized, atomized being. It's all like processes and flows. Like uh, and uh, Jared uh, Berovic says, a self-fulfilling prophecy could better be described as a performative utterance, which is a special sort of statement. And so I, I think that's fair as well. It's a, 
they get into exactly how Oedipus works and how it becomes this sort of replicating thing uh, actually in this uh, chapter. So we'll get there at some point. I'm going to continue moving on, however. Um, uh, we will at some point uh, have to do a reading on Freud and uh, Jung, and I would love to do a discussion around the Red Book because it's a really fun read, and I think it could be a really blast to go through it. So we'll figure it out. Um, <clears throat> let us consider another text of Freud's, a later one where Oedipus is already designated as the nuclear complex. A child is being beaten. Uh, so that's the title of the book. The reader cannot escape the impression of a disquieting strangeness. Never was the paternal theme less visible, and yet never was it affirmed with as much passion and resolution. The imperialism of Oedipus is founded here on an absence. After all, of the three supposed phases of the girl's fantasy, the first is such that the father does not yet appear, while in the third, the father no longer appears. That leaves the second, then, where the father shines forth in all his brilliance. Clearly, without a doubt, but indeed, this second phase has never had a real existence. It is never remembered. It has never succeeded in becoming conscious. It is a construction of analysis, but it is no less a necessity on that account. Hold up. The, 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 the first few sentences make complete sense, and then in the end, it, it, I, I can't follow the syntax of any of the sentences. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's not great. Um, so an important thing to discuss here is actually what the text is. If you haven't read A Child is Being Beaten, uh, if you search for it, I'm sure there's a PDF somewhere. I have no idea where, um, perhaps on our server somewhere. Um, I'm just going to read from uh, Yale's page on the book. Uh, it deals with the theoretical problem of how pleasure and suffering become linked. Freud explores the childhood beating fantasy, which is generally accompanied by sexual arousal, its transformational stages, the changing cast of protagonists, and the differences between boys and girls in the sequences and meaning of fantasy. He extends his discussion to encompass masochism and perversion. Uh, there are some very specific stories in it. Um, it is uh, unique uh, and not great. <laughs> not a fun read to say the least. Um, it deals a lot with how a child remembers abuse and deals with it. And so since then, it's generally been referred to in that sense, at least uh, my understanding, uh, about how a child remembers abuse, how they deal with it because of the oddness of not really having, you know, a full understanding of pleasure, pain, sexual pleasure, all that. Um, also, Freud's daughter was involved, which, I mean, not to go Freudian, but huh, um, that's a whole thing. Um, yeah. Right. Um, I, I think what they're arguing here is that, um, so in this book, right, there's a methodology, we're back to methodology, right? There's a methodological use of the familial and the, um, perhaps even the edible here. And yet they seem to point out this, particularly in the last part where you're looking at Misha, they seem to be saying that even the, the methodological aspect that's positive of the father seems to be an analytic positing that's necessary, even though Freud seems to actually say it's not here, right? So you've got um, an aspect of the methodology that we're making present, and then you've got this, um, what, what's, what's actually being analyzed, which is showing um, a null of that, right? And there's, so there's a contradiction here that they're locating. Um, and specifically, the girl's fantasy that they're discussing here is uh, 
a girl, uh, if memory serves, uh, again, it's been a while since we read this, uh, a girl who uh, went through a handful of phases of how she believed her father loved her. It's a terrible, she had a terrible, shitty dad. Um, but eventually she came to the terms that her father loves her because her father beats her brother and sister and therefore not her. He must love me, which is like, I mean, that's fucked up, obviously. Um, but this is uh, the three phases that are talked about here, just as a specific thing. I don't have a direct line to line with a lot of what they're saying here. Again, not a Freud expert. Yeah, so all, even already the, the, the uh, phallus, the, the, breath, the oral, the anal, and the conbrings and the gaze are already representatives of drives. They are not drives in themselves. And this is something that Freud missed in the way he understood all drives to be sexual. And that led to this problematic split between life drives and death drives. Whenever push to their extreme, any drive um, has its own, uh, not necessarily opposite, but I don't know what to say, not necessarily anti-production, but uh, its own bungled action or something. Uh, love can necessitate hate and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's heavily about the interplay. I'm going to read the next paragraph um, and because it, it covers the rest. I should have just continued because it's literally about more of this. Um, <clears throat> uh, speaking to the girl's fantasy. Uh, what is at issue in this fantasy? Some boys are beaten by someone. The teacher, for example, in the presence of the little girls. We are present from the start at a double Freudian reduction, which is in no way imposed by the fantasy, but is required by Freud in the manner of a presupposition. On the one hand, Freud wants to deliberately reduce the group character of the fantasy to a purely individual dimension. The beaten child must, in a way, be the ego, substitutes for the subject himself, and the one who does the beating must be the father, the father's substitute. On the other hand, it is necessary for the variations of the fantasy to be organized in disjunctions whose use must be strictly exclusive. Hence, there will be a girl series and a boy series but dissymmetrical, the female fantasy having three phases, the last of which is boys are beaten by the teacher, while the male fantasy has only two, the last of which is my mother beats me. The only common phase, the second for the girls and the first for the boys, affirms without doubt the prevalence of the father in both cases. But this is the famous non-existent phase. Just as a note real quick, they're starting to point, I'm going to continue because I just need to, um, but they're starting to point out a very specific thing here, which is the nature of the group, as they say here, being reduced, that uh, the complexity of the delirium, in this case, uh, what Freud is writing about, which is a group of children and a teacher, which is a very complex interconnected social web of signs and signifiers, all kinds of crazy shit that has been flattened into ego and father, which is problematic with their uh, their sort of psychoanalysis and the way they view things. We'll get more into that in a moment. Uh, such is always the case with Freud. Something common to the two sexes is required, but something that will be lacking in both and that will, be, that will distribute the lack in two non-symmetrical series, establishing the exclusive use of the disjunctions. You are a girl or boy. Such is the case with Oedipus and its resolution different in boys and in girls, such is the case with castration and its relationship to Oedipus in both instances. Castration is, at once, the common lot, that is, 
the prevalent and transcendent phallus. And the exclusive distribution that presents itself in girls as desire for the penis and in boys as fear of losing it or refusal of a passive attitude. This something in common must lay at the foundation for the exclusive use of the disjunctions of the unconscious and teach us resignation. Resignation to Oedipus, to castration, for girls, renunciation of their desire for the penis, for boys, renunciation of male protest. In short, assumption of one's sex. This something in common, the great phallus, the lack with two non-superimposable sides, is purely mythical. It is like the one in negative theology. It introduces lack into desire and causes exclusive series to emanate, to which it attributes a goal, an origin, and a path of resignation. Uh, I will read the footnote very quickly. This is from Freud in uh, Analysis Terminable and Interminable. The two corresponding themes are in the female, an envy for the penis, a positive striving to possess a male genital, and in the male, a struggle against his passive or feminine attitude to another male. At no other point does one suffer more from an oppressive feeling than one has been preaching to the winds when one is trying to persuade a woman to abandon her wish for penis on the ground of its being unrealizable, or when one is seeking to convince a man that a passive attitude to men does not always signify castration, and that it is indispensable in many relationships in life. The rebellious overcompensation of the male produces one of the strongest transference resistances. He refuses to subject himself to father's substitute, or to feel indebted to him. Uh, you were asking earlier about how myth uh, works and messes with the unconscious, how, how the unconscious plays with that, or desiring machines. Uh, this very much lays that out. Uh, they, they go far deeper into uh, the direct functions of this, uh, but they've spoken about it a little bit as well. Um, first is uh, the nature of the exclusive disjunction. Oh, the other or or. You get to choose to be a girl or a boy. This is not just as simple as saying, uh, and again, I'm sure I'm speaking to the choir here, <laughs> people into Deleuze tend to be pretty open and understanding about what gender is as a social construct. But the idea that you're not just a girl or a boy, but if I say you are, if I look at my son when he cries and I say, men don't cry, be a man. This is not just me saying a thing. This is me creating a series of exclusive disjunctions that causes him to not only, in his desire, create anti-production and issues, but it begins fucking things up and it creates a lack. As they say, a lack with two non-superimposable sides. And the issue with this is it gives uh, the uh, unconscious uh, attribute, it gives a goal, an origin, a, a place where you started, a place where you're ending, a shape of what things are intended to be, a path of resignation is what Oedipus does. This is how the unconscious sort of handles mythology like this. Um, oh, there's another footnote on the next page. Oh, God, it continues. That's why I want it cut off. I hate this book sometimes. Uh, to feel indebted to him for anything and refuse it. Yeah, that's fine. Um, it's, it's basically describing Freudian penis envy and uh, edipalization of young boys. It's interesting that they are here mentioning also, um, in a short reference, negative theology and the one, because it's the same thing for that. Because when you are thinking about a negative theology or apophantic theology, they are... Um, uh, quite the opposite, so to say, to the um, assumption of God as this um, hypernatural thing, the hyper good, the or the 
the uber goods so to speak or uh, that that uh, incorporates everything every uh, specific qualia and and that could be but in negative theology god is that um, that one thing that is just a whole so to speak it is not um, able to be differentiated in any way it cannot be known by man and that's how um it's always shrouded in some sort of mystery. It is unreachable. It is some sort of lack, so to speak. Um, and that's what uh, humanity is constantly striving for, not for a positive goal, but to somehow uh, uh, deal with this lack, so to speak. And that's the same uh, in Oedipus, because there's, and there are these um, purely idealized negatives that cannot be reached in any possible way but that are, that are still effective in some sort of sense and getting uh, pushed on specific uh, real flows and activities or getting related to it yeah absolutely and and the other thing they introduce here and it's a big deal that uh, it took me a long time to understand i'm still mostly grasping but they're starting to talk here is about the introduction of lack that it's not something we naturally have uh, freud would of course disagree and say that uh, women exist, have this natural lack of penis envy and, you know, their healthy version is to understand, oh, you're never going to have a penis. Just deal with it and have that lack with you forever. It's healthy. Fine. And for a boy, the ability for it, it's, it's just so fucked up to say this and do this to kids. I mean, the more we get into this every time, it just makes me nuts because it's just obviously psychological child abuse and, and adult abuse for the people we do it to, obviously. But um, it's the introduction of lack here. The you are one or the other, which means I am never able or I have nothing in common or very little in common. And it's just the exclusive disjunction fucks us so bad. It's gross. This is a short version. Uh, any other comments before I move on? Yeah. Sorry, I keep talking so much. Um, so I really like the way Triad put that. Um, and uh and the way Freud understands symbols, and then I guess Lacan comes up with the symbolic register. Uh, in in penis envy, it makes uh, so so the way you put Freud understanding penis envy ends up changing with Lacan. With Lacan, um, the 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 thing that's lacked is. Uh, symbolic and it's tied to an an imaginary object so there's this there's somehow this correspondence that's made between a man's organ uh, as as an imaginary object and then the symbolic affordances to that organ so so then the conversation becomes what's lacked is male privilege and and not the penis itself um like i don't want to reify penis envy at all but um but the lacking male privilege thing i think is a consequential uh dimension and 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 it doesn't sound like deleuze and guadri are, are saying that there is no lack caused by the symbolic i think they're they're suggesting they're like pointing at it and saying that that's a problem but but the problem is is that the symbolic gets com conflated with the imaginary. Well, so 
and not yeah, create and, and, either. Well, or. and this is where we start. The, like the words everyone uses for these things, all these thinkers is slightly different. The I think for Deleuze and Guattari, they would say, in my understanding, that uh, lack is not something that is determinate and not something that is, uh, we'll say, innate, but instead something that is produced. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, whereas Freud would say a, a woman, that's it. You've got fucking penis. In You're born with lack. That's just the human condition of your life. Off you go, have fun. And for boys, a different version of that that's you know, a little bit more than just penis envy, but it's, it's lack innately born as a human. And Deleuze and Guattari would be like, no, you don't have that. I mean, lack is made. We end up having lack through the use of representations and through especially the use of the exclusive disjunction, which causes lack uh, and that to be produced. But it's not something that's determinate, I, as I understand it, not a source uh, or sort of preceding thing. It comes after desire. Desire makes lack, not lack making desire. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the flip. Mm -hmm. And and Freud reinstantiate. So an example of this is Freud reinstantiating original sin with his uh, the the guilt of killing the Oedipal father in Totem and Taboo, and then that reproduces this this lack. But but it's it's like you never had that original sin to begin with. The contrary should be said. Neither is there anything in common between the two sexes nor do they cease communicating with each other in a transverse mode where each subject possesses both of them. But with the two of them partitioned off and where each subject communicates with one sex or the other in another subject. Such is the law of partial objects. Neither is lacking. Nothing can be defined as a lack, nor are the disjunctions in the unconscious ever exclusive, but rather the object of a properly inclusive use that we must analyze. Freud had a concept at his disposal for stating this contrary notion, the concept of bisexuality. And it was not by chance that he was never able or never wanted to give this concept the analytical position and extension it required. Without even going that far, a lively controversy developed when certain analysts, following Melanie Klein, tried to define the unconscious forces of the female sexual organ by positive characteristics in terms of partial objects and flows. This slight shift which did not suppress mythical castration, but made it depend secondarily on the organ, instead of the organs depending on it, met with great opposition from Freud. He maintained that the organ, from the viewpoint of the unconscious, could not be understood except by proceeding from a lack of a primal deprivation, and not the opposite. Uh, it's also worth pointing out here uh, that uh, Freud's daughter uh, was openly lesbian, and Freud blamed himself for that till his death. Uh, and she, she very much, uh, like she did follow her father's teachings. He, 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 was, he was very upset about it. He apparently cared for his daughter. So he's an odd cat, his life story. But the idea uh, he basically had was that a woman who doesn't get over this, who doesn't get over this lack, uh, has the ability to become a lesbian. And it's her father's fault. And uh, I mean, that's, that's how that goes, I guess. But again, uh, their point here is very simple. That uh, no matter what you did, you cannot talk about these things in Freudian terms as if it's a positive place. Melanie Klein attempted to talk about uh, the the female sex organs. And there's some uh, reference here that's worth reading through. It's really interesting. Um, but it's uh, his his reasoning is essentially like I don't, it, it, it's so weirdly bioreductive the way that he talks about it is effectively, well, like, look, men have a thing and women don't is essentially 
where he went with it. And it's very strange and specific. And that's what they're talking about that. Look, the reality is these, yes, these are physical characteristics, blah, blah, blah. But the nature of sex is, is that they are partial objects that this one person's sex connects with another person's sex, but they're partial objects. They connect in their own way. And it's a positive force. It is not by nature, this weird exclusive disjunction of separation or either, or, or, uh, space and lack place between things. I leave it open because it's an interesting discussion, the bisexuality and all of that. It's. Yeah. I think, uh, the way I read this or that I found it interesting was like, uh, like Freud is stating the contrary concept. So of bisexuality, which would be like, as opposed to the losing guitar, he's saying that like, there's one sex or the other in another subject. So like, uh, each subject, yeah, each subject communicates with one sex or the other in another subject. Like Freud is just going to say like, there, there, there is, there is men and there is women and they are all men and they are all women. And there is like no kind of like spectrum within people. Yes. And it's that the last sentence Freud maintained that the organ from the viewpoint of the unconscious, again, this is that the unconscious could not be understood except by proceeding from a lack or a primal deprivation and not the opposite. It had to come from a place of deprivation. It's the only way, uh, that uh, women's sex organs could be understood. So, right. So there's, <laughs> uh, excuse me for using this term, but there's a lack in, in Freud, so to speak, of um, accepting difference or alterity in a specific sense, because he's posing in, in some sort of sense, a new unity between men and women as some sort of uh, asymmetric um, relationship between both that is, um, uh, some somewhat um, uh, complementary, but it's uh, inherently hierarchical. It gives something to men and and uh, um, puts it away from women. Yes, exactly. It's it's by yeah. making it either or, it forces women into a naturally submissive, missing a thing that a man has. Even though men have their own complex relationship to the phallus as well. Yeah, you got to be a little careful here because right. Although men might have a penis, they don't because they're castrated, right? So this is the point um, they're making in the footnote, especially where, right, man deals with this feminine aspect of himself, basically in contrast to other men, right? So there's a way in which um, the penis itself here is actually a source of lack for men, even though they have one, because castration, this is where it's not simply like bionormative, right? there's an aspect of it which goes beyond that actually which is part of what makes it that powerful i, I like the point about hierarchy um and well said uh that castration in this way necessitates this hierarchical relationship to some sort of figure that's able to have it all and 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 your subjectivity is produced precisely in some sort of uh you know at the same time guilty and envious relationship to this figure that has it all and and for men their their totalization is based on an exclusion of this one figure well and, uh, and it is i i mean it's easy to say that it's it is still higher deeply hierarchical 
Because again, the way that Freud treats, for example, homosexuality is by essentially saying, oh, there's something wrong with them. They're more like women is like shit. Like it's, it's like, it's just so deeply patriarchal and uh, very much sort of that normative uh, hierarchy that existed at the time. It, even though men have their own very complex and Freud has to go super out of his way to not just say, yeah, men have a problem too, but I mean, women, like what's with them, huh? Crazy, crazy women. I don't understand my wife. Kind of like stupidity. It's really insane. Sorry, and, I'm, I have a really, I'm hypercritical of a lot of Freud stuff when it comes to this shit. Well, and I think it's good that we do that. Um, and at the same time, it's interesting that Freud starts with polymorphous sexuality, right? It's not even quite bisexuality. Um, it's whatever. Libido has no natural object. Um, and then he makes castration necessary. And I, and I think all of this stems from like some reification of human nature. Um, so like, you know, what is human nature? Human nature is, uh, you know, being animal or something. And, 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 and uh, Freud ends up positing two fundamental expressions of instinct one being aggression the other one being sexuality right and so with a view like this of course you're going to see it uh um i mean not of course but it makes sense that freud would see it necessary to create this machine that that castrates people and puts uh like limiters on their on their engine or whatever um and then this is what creates the uh, the sort of heteronormative uh, the generation of heteronormativity that you're a woman and you're a man. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very well said. And the other thing we got to mention here too, is that even with Melanie Klein's aspect here, the part they're giving her credit for is the positive aspect of it, but it doesn't actually, I mean, they're saying that Melanie Klein still doesn't get out of the problem of castration here. Right. So, you know, there's still a problem here. <laughs> Well, and with Melanie Klein, it's a problem because the partial objects have definite qualities uh, that are uh, that insist across time. So you have an internalized object that is bad, and that's why you know the world feels soul crushing or something like that. And and it becomes this this uh, you know isolating, alienation, alienating sort of paranoiac self knowledge thing again. Well, and, and I think the other part, even if you go down the road and you chase down Melanie Klein, her entire presupposition is interesting, where it basically places femininity the same way that masculinity may be placed within the phallus. Uh, she does the same thing for women's genitalia by placing femininity there. But it's I, I would even argue that, yeah, sure, that's cool, but that's actually an even worse use of the exclusive disjunction where you're like, even further separating like, oh yeah, no, femininity, that's women, that's it. Masculinity, that's men, that's it. It comes from them, off you go, is like sort of doubling down on the same mistake. Yeah, I mean, as I read it, the masculinity and femininity part is kind of secondary here, right? And in, in either thinker, it's really about this relationship to the phallus where that, um, or if, if you like, even with, um, yeah, I guess the, the vagina here, but even in that sense, right, like this is kind of what Melanie Klein's bringing to the table, too, is at that point, it's a partial object. And, it, and in saying that, are you saying that it necessitates like a connection and some sort of libidinal flow? Um, I'm saying it's interesting that by focusing on the vagina here in terms of like the positive characteristics, right? So Melanie Klein is doing something different. So 
castration is going to become a secondary aspect in relation to this partial organ. But if I follow correctly, like because we're dealing with a partial object in terms of Melanie Klein, there is this sum. And because it's a positive account, there is going to be this kind of pushback uh, with like as though you, you're starting with like a gender here. In fact, even as I read like the first part with Freud, like it sounds like we kind of know gender through the phallus rather than we find um, gender before the phallus. I think we're going to have to push this to another discussion because it's like, again, this is a fun road to go down. I think we've described it enough. Is anyone not understanding what we're talking about at this point? Because I don't think I want to stick around too long on these points because the whole point here again is here is their critique of these things. This is the problem that they're talking about. It's an exclusive use of the disjunction. It makes our unconscious separate things out, creates anti-production and repression. Uh, and it is not, these representations are not determinate. They are not uh, primal. They are not part of uh, who we are as part of the human condition, that they are after the fact. Uh, this is their argument. So I'm going to continue on to the next. Um, we have not finished chanting the litany of the ignorances of the unconscious. I mean, this is literally what I was just saying, that we aren't even close. It knows nothing of castration or Oedipus, just as it knows nothing of parents, God, the law, lack. The women's liberation movements are correct in saying, we are not castrated, so you get fucked. Nice. Didn't I'm sorry, did we read here we have a properly analytical fallacy? Ah, fuck. Did I skip a paragraph? I think so. I'm just going to burn through the burn through this next two then. Um, here we have a properly analytical fallacy, which will be found again to a considerable degree in the theory of the signifier that consists in passing from the detachable partial object to the position of a complete object in the thing detached, a phallus. This passage implies a subject. This passage implies a subject defined as a fixed ego of one sex or the other, who necessarily experiences as a lack his subordination to the tyrannical complete object. This is perhaps no longer the case when the partial object is posited for itself on the body without organs, with, as its sole subject, not an ego, but the drive that forms the desiring machine along with it, and that enters into relationships of connection disjunction and conjunction with other partial objects at the core of the corresponding multiplicity whose every element can only be defined positively. We must speak of castration in the same way we speak of edipalization, whose crowning moment it is. Castration designates the operation by which psychoanalysis castrates the unconscious, injects castration into the unconscious. Castration as a practical operation on the unconscious is achieved when the thousand break flows of desiring machines, all positive, all productive, are projected into the same mythical space, the unary stroke of the signifier. We have not finished chanting the litany of ignorances of the unconscious. It knows nothing of castration or Oedipus, just as it knows nothing of parents, gods, the law, lack. The women's liberation movements are correct in saying, we are not castrated, so you get fucked. And far from being able to get by with anything like the wretched maneuver where men answer that this itself is proof that women are castrated, or even console women by saying that men are castrated too, all the while rejoicing that they are castrated the other way, on the side that is not superimposable. 
it should be recognized that women's liberation movements contain, in a more or less ambiguous state, what belongs to all requirements of liberation, the force of the unconscious itself, the investment by desire of the social field, the divestment of repressive structures. Nor are we going to say that the question is not that of knowing if women are castrated, but only if the unconscious believes it, since all the ambiguity lies there. What does belief applied to the unconscious signify? What is an unconscious that no longer does anything but believe rather than produce? What are the operations, the artifices that inject the unconscious with beliefs that are not even irrational, but on the contrary, only too reasonable and consistent with the established order? Um, I may continue to the next paragraph. I actually think uh, Ben's right that it would just because it's the question at the end continuing. So I'm gonna continue, we will cover all of this, I promise. Let us return to the fantasy. A child is being beaten, children are beaten. A typical group fantasy where desire invests the social field and its repressive forms. If there is a mise-en-scene, it is directed by a social desiring machine whose product should not be considered abstractly, separating the girls and the boys' cases as if each little ego taking up its own business with daddy and On the contrary, boy, girl, and parents, agents of production and introduction, this ensemble being presented at the same time in each individual of the group fantasy. Simultaneously, the boys are beaten, initiated by the girls, and the girls cannot experience the pleasure of punishment except by becoming little boys. It is a whole chorus. I understand this. Back in the that the it makes sense and i agree with this idea that the, the unconscious knows nothing of a prefigured mythological era right um but the word no is the like the main point there because it's not a problem of knowledge but but these scenes do get created and passed on and whatnot. And this is like a really common thing that you can just observe. Like there was this, um, there was this uh, earthquake in, I wanna say India or whatever. And there's this big study on it, whatever. And it's, uh, I can't remember the name of it. But anyways, they were trying to see how the story changed and how uh, the way it developed uh, across space, across landmass. Uh, areas um, and they found that it changed significantly like by the like from the local point from where the earthquake happened and then from the narrative of the, of the earthquake spreading out across the land it would change according to the areas that you know the narrative went through and this is like the process of mythologizing right and and I wonder if that can be conflated with the way they're using scene machine here I, I I think so, but I think it's from a different direction. So when they say the mise-en-scene, they say very clearly it is directed by a social desiring machine whose product should not be considered abstractly. That's the the big sort of thing they're talking in here. Uh, so um, let me say it, let me try to explain it how I'm sort of reading it. Um, we have the scene in the classroom, which is the scene that they're talking about from uh, A Child is Beaten, where uh, a teacher's smacking the shit out of the kids, uh, specifically the boys for being gross little boys, basically, and saying such things. And the girl uh, digs it. She's like, oh, um, the Freudian way is to go like, well, she's having 
her mother is this and her relationship with her father, that kind of thing. But they're saying, no, pull back. Look, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening here. And you need to think through the machinery of the girl looking at the boy, the boy having his experience, and on top of it, the socius, which is effectively, uh, let's say, the BWO of that scene, uh, of the social structure that this is taking place in. Uh, it's not exactly that, but that's basically what a socius is. Um, and so the ability for this, the recording apparatus of this scene, which has probably played out before, and that these children have probably played out uh, themselves has not only been recorded on their own BWO, but also on the socius as they experience it. So you have it in the social machine as well as the subjectivization machine that's happening. So those things are recorded and this sort of repetition and the way this happens, I think they would assume it happens quite often. Uh, their argument would be that it's not so much that it comes from the fact that these are uh, archetypes that these people are dealing with, but instead that we assign them the archetypes after the fact, and then that actually creates this sort of secondary, uh, oh, that's what it was uh, mentality that the subject sort of experiences upon creation as well. So it's uh, the insertion of it in that point, I think. There's also like, uh, it's foreshadowing the territorial representation chapter in section or section in chapter three uh, with the, the eye being one portion of the representative triangle in that sense. Uh, how does one explain the role play by sight uh, in the contemplation of the face that is speaking? Uh, what enables the eye to grasp the terrible equivalence between the voice of alliance that inflicts and constrains and the body afflicted by the sign? Uh, they're, they're basically going to say that the eye uh, is what extracts the overcoding or the, like the surplus of code in this situation and like is signified like the act of the boy being beaten the girls witnessing it are like entering into like the act of reading a sign like uh there's a representation there that uh is like impacting their desire i don't want to read a bunch of chapter three well, that's the theater of cruelty in the, the primitive socius you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, any questions on this section at all? I will continue. Uh, perhaps one will recall, I think is where we're at. Perhaps one will recall a sequence from the film Hearts and Minds. We see Colonel Patton, the general's son, saying that his guys are great, that they love their mothers, their fathers, and their country, that they cry at religious services for their dead buddies. They're fine boys. Then the colonel's face changes, grimaces, and reveals a big paranoiac in uniform who shouts in conclusion, but still, they're a bloody good bunch of killers. It is obvious that when traditional psychoanalysis explains that the instructor is the father, that the colonel too is the father, and that the mother is nonetheless the father too, it reduces all of desire to a familial determination that no longer has anything to do with the social field actually invested by the libido. Of course, there is always something from the father or the mother that is taken up in the signifying chain. Daddy's mustache, the mother's raised arm. But it comes furtively to occupy a place among the collective agents. The terms of Oedipus do not form a triangle, but exist shattered into all corners of the social field. The mother on the instructor's knees, the father next to the colonel. Group fantasy is plugged into and machined on the socius, being fucked by the socius, wanting to be fucked by the socius, does not derive from the mother and father, even though the father and mother have their roles there as subordinate agents of transmission 
or execution. Again, talking about collapsing signifier signs, things we're experiencing, the the, the 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 stuff around us when we collapse that to very simplistic things and here their joke is basically hey look this is the dad that's also the dad also the mom's the dad technically the dad's not the dad but maybe the dad's like they're they're mocking sort of this idea of everything being collapsed into this very very refined representation when in reality there's a well, i hate to use the word rich tapestry because it has a little wooey odd feeling to it but that's really what they're saying. There's this rich tapestry of interconnected realities that are being played in partial objects that everything is being ruined into. The terms of Oedipus do not form a triangle, as they say, but it exists shattered into all corners of the social field. Oedipus is real. I have relationships with my mom and dad. Of course I do. They raised me. They're the ones who, thanks to the capitalist society we live in, essentially became my role models for the world. And a lot of people, it's not that different for, especially in America. Uh, and that's the challenge, is uh, in order to talk about this, we at first have to realize that a lot of these things are socially determinate, and we're assuming that they're actually primal. And that's where they end this kind of conversation here. Uh, Albloom says, it's the past folding into the child and folding out into the world. Of course, the mom and dad are part of that, but also, so is everything else. Yeah, that's basically it. And they're saying it's a little bit of a focus on these few things uh, as part of it. The Colonel Patton example I, I really like. When the notion of group fantasy was elaborated in the perspective of institutional analysis in the works of the team at Laborde Clinic, assembled around Jean Uri, the first task was to show how it differed from individual fantasy. It became evident that group fantasy was inseparable from the symbolic articulations that define a social field insofar as it is real, whereas the individual fantasy fitted the whole of this field over imaginary givens. If this first distinction is drawn out, we see that the individual fantasy is itself plugged into the existing social field, but apprehends it in the form of imaginary qualities that confer on it a kind of transcendence or immortality under the shelter of which the individual, the ego, plays out its pseudo-destiny. What does it matter if I die, says the general, since the army is immortal? The imaginary dimension of the individual fantasy has a decisive importance over the death instinct. Insofar as the immortality conferred on the existing social order carried into the ego all of the investments of repression, the phenomena of unidentification, of super-egoization, and castration, all the resignation desires, becoming a general, acquiring low, middle, or high rank, including the resignation to dying in the service of this order, whereas the drive itself is projected onto the outside and turned against the others, death to the foreigner, to those who are not of our own ranks. The revolutionary pole of group fantasy becomes visible, on the contrary, in the power to experience institutions themselves as mortal, to destroy them or change them according to the articulations of desire and the social field, by making the death instinct into a veritable institutional creativity. For that is precisely the criterion, at least the formal criterion, that distinguishes the revolutionary institution from the enormous inertia which the law communicates to institutions in an established order. As Nietzsche says, churches, armies, states, which of all of these dogs wants to die? If anyone is uh, here who has read more on, because uh, I'm just finishing letters, uh, the story of Deleuze and Guattari, more of Guattari's background, someone who's more familiar with Laborde, I'd love if anyone has a quick summary or thoughts on Laborde Clinic to sort of talk about, because that's, I think, an important part of this paragraph I can't give the background on.
Mm, I, I don't know if you really need to know much about the board here. The, the big move is to talk, I mean, I guess you could talk about Jean Array, but um, the big move is their investigation of uh, in, uh, of group fantasy and individual fantasy here, right? Yes. Uh, so, I mean, the short version of what I do know about Laborde is uh, this is where Guattari worked and the intention when he worked there alongside Ure, um, like they were, this isn't him talking about some random person. Like he knew and worked alongside Jean Ure for a while. Um, and uh, the ideas that are to come during the later chapters of Schizoanalysis, this is where he it began to formalize them and sort of explore a different way of doing therapy and a different way of treating schizophrenics versus the traditional clinic setting and the traditional analyst setting. Um, so it's a important uh, thing for sure to sort of just know that because as they go into this, he's talking very clearly about things that they were working on. It became evident. Here's what we learned through the literal stuff that Ori and him were actually doing. Um, so uh, Rimke says, uh, late to the confo, it's interesting how Freud's thoughts were reflected in 1930s societies. Um, in cities like New York and Chicago, there was a major interest in building the highest skyscraper, a race for the largest fallacy. It, it's even more than that. Um, the sort of one of the critiques, and they level it early on, and they continue to point out, is that the idea of Oedipus, this idea of the nuclear family, essentially came from the bougie life that he grew up in and is whole, wholly contingent to that era. So it's these ideas of this is what a family is supposed to be. This is not, it's not the case almost throughout all of history. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, Freud's thoughts, not only reflecting society, but inflecting, reflecting deeply socio historical contingent events and things. And uh, yeah, phallus skyscrapers are not, uh, not exactly far from that either. Now, any questions on this paragraph or thoughts? All right, we have a couple more pages to go. So uh, uh, I'm probably going to go ahead and bust through and finish this. So uh, if anyone needs to go, feel free. If anyone has questions, don't hesitate to type away and do it. Uh, thank you, Ken, for the wonderful fetish doll. There results a third difference between group fantasy and the so-called individual fantasy. The latter has a sub as subject the ego insofar as it is determined by the legal and legalized institutions in which it imagines itself to the point where even its perversion in its perversions the ego conforms to the exclusive use of the disjunctions imposed by the law for example oedipal homosexuality but group fantasy no longer has anything but the drives themselves as subject and the desiring regimes formed by them with the revolutionary institutions the group fantasy includes the disjunctions in the sense that each subject discharged of his personal identity but not of his singularities enters into relations with others following the communication proper to partial objects. Everyone passes into the body of the other on the body without organs. I actually don't know how to say this in another way than what they said. Real, real, real question. Is it, does anyone here not understand this paragraph? Because it's very crisp and short and I can't say a lot of stuff in this book. I'm happy, we're happy to break down sentences if anyone's having questions, and I mean that. So please, uh, the sentence here, I think that matters a lot when it comes to discussing group delirium and group desire and group fantasy is the sentence, but group fantasy no longer has anything but the drives themselves as subject and the desiring machines formed by them with the revolutionary institutions. There is a 
very specific gauntlet that feels like it's being thrown down here in that sentence. Um, the idea that uh, a, a person, a subject, an ego, when they enter into these social situations, for example, the example of child being beaten, that it's not so much that actually there is an ego or a whole subject that is part of that, and that is the thing moving around, but instead we need to look at the drives themselves and the desiring machines formed by them, because at the social level, uh, the ego conforms to the exclusive use of disjunctions imposed by the law. The social norms and the way that the socius, the body without organs of the social functioning, interacts and demands of them, people fall into that. And because of that, we can't necessarily think about it as this large-scale dozens of individual fantasies. Instead, it's a group fantasy. And when they talk about group fantasy, they're being very specific here, that it is a, a almost non-ego, non-subject-based thing as a group fantasy. The group fantasy includes disjunctions in the sense that each subject, discharged of personal identity, but not his singularities, enters into relations with others. That's it. I, I see this a lot uh, in diving. Uh, I, I, uh, I go diving with different people, but regardless of who's there, like, somebody's going to kind of like step into different roles as far as like the planning and the like inspection of gear, especially for cave diving. It's important that like everybody gets their gear inspected by somebody so that there's not accidents in the cave, but like different people will step up to do that in different groups. And they almost all do it in the same way. It's, it's just like a really interesting observance that I have seen in my personal life where like, regardless of the individuals in the group, there's kind of like a, a certain group behavior that has just sort of spread throughout the diving community with sort of pre-assigned roles for people to play. And would that then be an example of the body without organs? I recall you, um, Brooks, giving uh, an example of, of meta, of a, a gaming meta, being an example of the activity of a body without organs. Yes, it's essentially the socius that operates within that level of the, the social interactions inside of that. So there's mm -hmm. a socius that operates sort of at the large-scale society, and uh, the way that the BWO functions, and they utilize this very interchangeably. They have a handful of socii, we'll say, that they really refer to, and it's the three sort of large-scale ways that you know society operates. But they also refer to it in a way that uh, when we have... Uh, determinate social groups or uh, singular group fantasies, they refer also to the socials or the BWO of the group or the BWO of the social. They kind of use that interchangeably. Again, probably translation. It's one of the things I have trouble with. Um, but it's the nature of the way that is expected due to the large scale, giant body without organs that is the socials. Uh, it imposes rules and essentially regulations on every social interaction. So, uh, in the text, for example, um, Michael says, uh, the same way everyone behaves the same way in a gay sauna. Um, yes, actually, like these, these social norms and these rules are part of that. They're the effectively the semiotic structure uh, that uh, governs our actions. The, the example of the meta for a video game, uh, the more complex ones especially, is, I think, 
really good here. And uh, the way I explained it before is if you haven't played Dota 2, Dota 2 is an exceptionally complex video game. 102 heroes, 300 different items. Uh, each one has four or five skills uh, and each one of them levels up differently and does different things. So that alone is complicated, but on top of it, there's this entire layer of the obviously game mechanic interplay. So there's enough difficulty and and misunderstanding about like, you can't see how a game is supposed to be played. There's no such thing as min-maxing uh, and being best at like what should happen inside of Dota, but there sort of is. And this is this idea of the meta of, this character is meant to be played this way with these items. And you can play within that, but if you go far outside of it, uh, we'll just say that the community is excessively abusive to people who try like new shit or do things outside of it. Um, so the, the idea of the meta is like the self-regulating law. And they actually talk about it here that uh, uh, I think is it the next uh, sentence where we're talking about the economic law, but uh, they say before, where is it? Um, the latter, uh, the individual fantasy as, at, as subject, the ego, insofar as it is determined by the legal and legalized institution in which it imagines itself to the point where even in its perversions, the ego conforms to the exclusive use of disjunctions imposed by the law. Um, by law, they, here they don't mean literally like, you know, citation 64B that you can't speed, but like the societal laws, the rules of society. Um, and this is a very different piece. Um, it's a really interesting, again, I really like the way of looking at this. I'm going to move to the next, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, the next, uh, paragraph. Um, I have to ask, uh, because of my PDF, anyone who's looking PDF ends with a hyphen at the end, but then it seems like that's a paragraph break. Anyone want to, is this, does this paragraph end at the end of the page? In this respect, Klosowski has convincingly shown the inverse relationship that pulls the fantasy in two directions. As the economic law establishes perversion in the psychic exchanges, or as the psychic exchanges, on the contrary, promote a subversion of the law, quote, anachronistic, relative to the contrary, promote a subversion, uh, sorry, relative to the institutional level of gregariousness, the singular state can, according to its more or less forceful intensity, <clears throat> bring about a deactualization of the institution itself and denounce it, in turn, as anachronistic. The two kinds of fantasy, or rather the two regimes, are therefore distinguished according to whether the social production of goods imposes its rule on desire through the intermediary of an ego whose fictional unity is guaranteed by the goods themselves, or whether the desiring production of affects imposes its rule on institutions whose elements are no longer anything but drives. If we must still speak of utopia in this sense, a la Fouillet, it is most assuredly not as an ideal model, but as revolutionary action and passion. In his recent works, Klosowski indicates to us the only means of bypassing the sterile parallelism where we flounder between Freud and Marx by discovering how social production and relations of production are an institution of desire and how affects or drives form part of the infrastructure itself. For they are part of it. They are present there in every way while creating within the economic forms their own repression, as well as the means for breaking this repression. I love this paragraph. Uh, we could spend a great deal of time on it, but here is where they start. Uh, I, 
one of the ways I've heard someone describe a lot of this book is that they basically took uh, some of the best parts from Marx and married them to the best parts of Freud. And uh, in a way, what Marx did by saying, here is how you know, the class works, here's how production works through society, here's you know, sur surplus of labor, laying out all these rules in Capital and all of his other books. At the same time, you have Freud on the other side going, the unconscious has this drive and this, this, this thing beneath it called libido. And they basically slam them together and go, well, if production works like this in an economic sense, and we have seen that, as they say here, Klosowski actually points out, here's how this works, here's how repression is created literally in the production of goods. Well, what if we actually talk about the unconscious as not being the thing where a thing is, like a thing is born produced, but instead that actual production is happening and that uh, lack and all these other things are produced in that process in the same way that there's no such thing as uh, wheat that I get on my plate that's, you know, spontaneously appears there. It's part of a long series of labor flows and production. Uh, the same would be true of representation. It doesn't go the other way. I really, really like that. I just really like that. If, if anyone has anything else to add here, if I'm wrong, please. Uh, the development of distinctions between group and individual fantasy shows sufficiently well, at last, that there is no individual fantasy. Instead, there are two types of groups, subject groups and subjugated groups, with Oedipus and castration forming the imaginary structure under which members of the subjugated groups are induced to live or fantasize individually their membership in the group. It must still be said that the two types of groups are perpetually shifting, a subject group always being threatened with subjugation, a subjugated group capable in certain cases of being forced to take on a revolutionary role. It is therefore all the more disturbing to see to what extent Freudian analysis retains from the fantasy only its lines of exclusive disjunction and flattens it into its individual or pseudo-individual dimensions which by their very nature refer to the fantasy, refer the fantasies to subjugated groups rather than carrying out the opposite operation and disengaging in the fantasy, the underlying element of a revolutionary group potential. When we learn that the instructor, the teacher, is daddy and the colonel too and also the mother, when all the agents of social production and anti-production are in this way reduced to the figures of familial reproduction, we can understand why the panicked libido no longer risks abandoning Oedipus and internalizes it. The libido internalizes it in the form of a castrating duality between the subject of the statement and the subject of the enunciation, as is characteristic of the pseudo-individual fantasy. Quote, I, as a man, understand you, but as judge, uh, as boss, as colonel or general, that is to say the father, I condemn you. But this duality is artificial, derived, and supposes a direct relationship proceeding from the statement to the collective agents of enunciation in the group fantasy. Is anyone still here? Did my internet disconnect again? Uh, you're, you're fine. All right, cool. Making sure. I had that awful time where everything disconnected. Um, well, I'll try again. Uh, we had this discussion yesterday because uh, in schizoanalysis, the intention is to understand people's investments and where they sit and where their sort of uh, class interests are, for example. Uh, the difficulty here is talking about subject groups and subjugated groups, uh, that there is no such thing as the individual fantasy, which is 
very interesting. And I think, uh, to me, the reason that they say this is uh, because the nature of the individual in their sense, because we are essentially a collection of a lot of partial objects and uh, uh, desiring machines, it's not really possible for any of us to be truly individual. Uh, we're collections of our parts that we've gotten from other people and those around us. So, you know, any individual fantasy is necessarily social in the first place, uh, unless a baby is literally born and left in a cave and locked in, like for life, somehow, and survives. That maybe would be, maybe, I don't know, <laughs> that would be the way. But I think to them, it's subject groups where the subject is one who's got this sort of freedom to connect and be doing how it does. Um, but then the other is the subjugated groups who are in line with this lie of Oedipus or these larger mythologies or representation that basically control and mold their group fantasy in a very particular way, rather than the subject groups who effectively group fantasy isn't something that tells them what to do, but instead they create group fantasy. And I think that's kind of the back and forth they're getting at here when they say things like, uh, when all the agents of social production and anti-production are in this way reduced to figures of familiar reproduction, uh, the libido internalizes it in the form of this castrating duality between the subject of the statement and the subject of enunciation. Um, it's a pseudo-individual fantasy. Oh, I, I as just a person, believe this thing. Oh, I, I, I. But I'm going to act in a way that is wholly social and as part of a group fantasy because that's actually how it fucking works. No one makes choices otherwise. Um, so the, like that line here, I as a man understand you. You have this weird individual like, oh no, I, Brooks. I mean, God, the way I think, it's so wholly divided from the nature of me running this entire thing and how I've been running the server. And oh, you as you, Ben, who, who step onto the server and are running a new DAO group, you as an individual, Yes, you may do what you want, but the reality is the social nature of all of our interactions means that whatever fantasy we all live under is by nature a group fantasy. We can't have individual fantasies. It's absurd and a lie that we're taught through representation. It, uh, it's, it's very similar to uh, Obama. Uh, I know, quoting Obama, and that's actually not a bad line from him. I know. Wait, one second, I'm a lib. You'll see. Uh, he had the line where he said, uh, a business owner, you didn't do that alone. That's what they're saying here. Like that's literally it. A business owner is part of a large infrastructure network and roads and customers and people who are involved in everything in the society that makes it. There's no such thing as an individual business. There's also no such thing as an individual fantasy. Same thing. If I can add something onto that, you, you can be a, um, what is it? It's subject group and, and subjugated group. Are those the two? Yes. You can be a subject subjugated group and um and parts of the fantasy are silent and not spoken and and by the silence in those specific moments uh they imply and connote a certain thing in that moment whether it be you know an acceptance of what it's going on of what's going on or a rejection or something like that struck um and in this way you can get the appearance of a private or personal eye or whatnot. Um, but even then, the silent you know, judgment or affectation you may have is still a part of the group fantasy. And, uh, and I also think that's 
one of the things that psychoanalysis was trying to hint on by making that split between uh, the subject of the statement and the subject of enunciation, um, because my my statement can appear to say something, but at the same time, it's also producing this alternative dimension of equivocity. Um, you know, I like, I'm, that. I like yeah. the way you phrase that. Please continue. Sorry, I just want to say that's I like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I can really just finish there. <laughs> oh, so to leap off that, because Michael asks in uh, the chat, uh, I don't think I understand the statement from the statement to the collective agents is what you're talking about, where uh, I have essentially there's kind of two statements. There's the subject of the statement where I say, oh, I, I Brooks, I feel for you. And then there's the statement of enunciation, enunciation in their usage uh, through a few other texts. Uh, that I found when they talk about it is intended to be, uh, think about it as performative, maybe a better word. So the collective agents of enunciation, when I say, yes, no, I'm, um, I'm, I'm here and I feel for you, I'll be reading tomorrow. Like it's my, my collective agents of enunciation is all you fuckers. Like this is who all the people who are listening to me, who's part of this, my wife in the next room, as I say things that are intentionally semi-performative and it's this duality is artificial derived and supposes a direct relationship proceeding from the statement to the collective agents of enunciation. That when I say a thing like, I am a judge, I am a boss, I'm assuming singularity and individual fantasy, that's total bullshit. It's totally bullshit. I, I don't get to be a judge and have that individual fantasy. That is a group fantasy, a judge by nature is. A host of a fucking stupid podcast where we read this crap is by nature a, a social group fantasy. Um, now, how that works is uh, subjugated and subject groups, lots of different options, but uh, like that kind of setup, but they're specifically talking here about kind of this idea of this pseudo individualism that comes from the way that people get edipalized. That's how I, I read it. Roger, welcome. Do you have anything to say on collective agents of enunciation, my friend? Uh, you're taking me on short notice. I just walked in, <laughs> so I don't know the context. Well, look, look, we have the last three paragraphs, if you could summarize it, that would be great. Um, give me the page, please. Oh, no, too late, too late. I'm sorry. I thought you were quicker than that. <laughs> sorry, that was rude. Uh, Roger, thank you for joining. We're on uh, middle of 64, uh, heading into the next paragraph. Institutional analysis tries to trace its difficult path between the repressive asylum and the legalistic hospital on the one hand and the contractual psychoanalysis on the other. From the outset, the psychoanalytic relationship model itself after the modeled itself after the contractual relationship of the most traditional bourgeois medicine, the feigned exclusion of a third party, the hypocritical role of money to which psychoanalysis brought farcical new justifications. Uh, thanks for coming, Triad. The pretended time limitations that contradicts itself by reproducing a debt to infinity, by feeding an inexhaustible transference, and by always nursing new conflicts. We are astonished when we hear that a terminated analysis is by that very fact of failure, even if this proposition is accompanied by the analyst's little smile. We are surprised when we hear a knowledgeable analyst mention in passing one of his patients still dreams of being invited to eat or have a drink at his place after several years of analysis, as if there were not a tiny sign of the abject dependence to which analysis reduces patients. How can we ward off 
in the practice of the cure, this abject desire that makes us bend our knees, lays us on the couch, and makes us remain there. Guattari really, 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 really didn't like psychoanalysis as a practice. Really, 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 really. Um, here he's complaining about just sort of the nature of this absurd thing that's happening where we've basically created the analyst and the analysand. Uh, it's exclusive disjunction. One is one, one is the other. You are a thing, you are not. Do what I say. Then, and he's like, and then when people don't get cured, the guy kind of chuckles about it. He's like, yeah, well, like, you guys crazy. Did you know that? Guy, crazy. I guess it didn't work. And it's like, yeah, of course it didn't ask. Uh, it's this insane process that we brought in by also including capital in these other things. It's a little ramble about that paragraph and also a lot of other Guattari's writings. It's pretty spot on for him. Well, it seems to me that the analyst analyzan relationship uh, is, um, you know, in its typical dimension is sort of this, uh, this, production of capital or this technology of commodification. So you go to an analyst and not to your uh, friends or community or whatever. So you don't have to worry about their desire. And in the same way, an analyst is, uh, well, I guess, sorry for this, but an analyst is, is like a prostitute in the same way. You go there so you can use them and not have to worry about their feelings or desires. Um, and at the same time, the analyst reinforces this dynamic by uh, maintaining a, uh, I don't want to say a strict separation of roles, but, um, but one of the things that, that is sort of drilled into you if you go into sort of any sort of mental health practice is the danger of having multiple roles, of being both friend and counselor. Uh, because then there's this there's this uh, fear of, I mean traditionally it's a fear of of sexuality. So traditionally it's a fear that if you include the capacity for multiple roles, then somehow sexual attraction will slip in there, and then you'll have abuses going on. Um, yep. Do you want to say something? No, 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 no. I was uh, going to say yep and then move on. Uh, I, I want to get try to get through this. We got we got a little bit more. I don't want to stop because it's. Yeah. I don't want the next reading to be like four paragraphs. I would feel like it'd be terrible. Um, right. uh, so to continue real quick, uh, because I think they're about to talk through some of what you said and what uh, Michael's asking in the chat too. Uh, let us consider a third and final text of Freud's analysis: terminable and interminable from 1937. We prefer not to follow a recent suggestion that it would be better to translate analysis finite, analysis infinite, since finite infinite is almost mathematics or logic, whereas the problem is particularly practical and concrete. Does this story have an ending? Can analysis be ended? Can the process of analysis be terminated, yes or no? Can it be completed, or is it condemned to a constant self-perpetuation? As Freud says, can a currently given conflict be exhausted? Can the one who is sick be forewarned against ulterior conflicts? Can even new conflicts be awakened for a preventative purpose? A great beauty animates this text of Freud's, an undefined something that is hopeless, disenchanted, tired, and at the same time, a serenity, a certitude in the finished work. It is Freud's testament. 
He is going to die, and he knows it. He knows something is wrong in psychoanalysis. The cure tends to be more and more interminable. He knows that soon he will no longer be there to see how things are going, so he takes stock of the obstacles to treatment with the serenity of a person who senses what a treasure his work is, but senses too the poisons that have already filtered in. Everything would be fine if the economic problem of desire were merely quantitative. It would be a matter of reinforcing the ego against the drives. The celebrated, strong, mature ego, the contract, the pact between the analyst and an ego that is normal in spite of everything. Except that there are qualitative factors in the desiring economy that indeed present an obstacle to treatment, and Freud reproaches himself for not having taken them sufficiently into account. I'm going to continue on. The first of these factors is the rock of castration, the rock with two non-symmetrical faces which creates in us an incurable alveus, and against which the analyst stumbles. The second is a qualitative aptitude for conflict, which means that the quantity of libido does not branch into two variable forces corresponding to heterosexuality and homosexuality, but creates in most people irreducible oppositions between the two forces. Finally, the third factor of such economic importance that it outweighs the dynamic and topical consideration concerns a type of resistance that is non-localizable. It would seem that certain subjects have such a viscous libido, or on the contrary, such a liquid one, that nothing succeeds in taking hold. It would be a mistake to see in this remark of Freud's nothing more than an observation of detail, a mere anecdote. In fact, it concerns what is most essential in the phenomena of desire, the qualitative flows of the libido. Um, I will continue on. I just want to summarize so far. Um, they're discussing how in Freud's later years, as he started to realize that there were some problems, as he started to talk about these, is there's issues he's finding just in the nature of how the libido functions, that some things take, some things don't. Some people have, uh, as he, they put it, or he puts it, a viscous or a liquid libido, uh, overly runny, if you want to say it like that. And uh, it's actually a really big deal to him. And as he writes about it in the text, it's, it's, a, it's an issue he can't quite grapple with. And he doesn't really know why. And it's, to them, they see it as uh, essential to the way the desire functions. They say it's about the qualitative flows, that now we're starting to talk about that libido isn't just this very simple I have four libidos plus six libidos, and there it is. That there's other, there's another difficulty to it. There's more. Uh, any comments on that before I move on? Because I do want to jump to the next part uh, and try to get through to the point they're making. All right. Uh, they're about to discuss uh, Andre Green, uh, who's fantastic on uh, uh, a lot of sort of analysis, uh, worth digging into uh, if you want to sort of, you know, he does a, few bits on Melanie Klein, uh, which is where I read about her piece on uh, the mother phallus, I think is how it's translated. Um, again, it's originally in French. It's not easy. In some fine pages, Andre Green recently took up the question again by making up a list of three types of sessions, the first two of which comprise counterindications, the third alone constituting the ideal session in analysis. According to type one, viscosity, resistance of a hysterical form, quote, the session is dominated by a heavy, weighty, boggy climate. Silences are leaden. The discourse dominated by the events of the day. As uniform, it is 
a descriptive narration where no reference to the past is disclosable. It unfolds along a continuous thread, unable to allow itself any break. Dreams are narrated. The enigma of dream is taken up in the secondary elaboration that makes dreams as narration and as event take precedence over dreams as a working over of thoughts. Sticky transference. End quote. According to type 2, liquidity, resistance of an obsessional form, quote, here the session is dominated by an extremely, extreme mobility of representations of all sorts. The language is unfettered, rapid, almost torrential. Everything enters here. The patient could just as easily say the opposite of everything he is uttering without changing anything fundamental to the analytic situation. All of this is without consequence since the analysis slides off the couch like water off a duck's back. The unconscious does not cause anything to stick. There is no anchoring in the transference. Here, the transference is volatile. End quote. Only the third type remains, whose characteristics define a good analysis. The patient, quote, speaks in order to constitute the process of a chain of signifiers. The meaning is not attached to the signified to which each of the enunciated signifiers refers, but is constituted by process, suture, the concatenation of bound elements. Every interpretation furnished by the patient can offer itself as an already signified awaiting its meaning. For this reason, interpretation is always retrospective, as the perceived meaning, oh, so that's what that meant. Um, end quote. You may recognize the line. This is the miraculating energy given off in the last step of the synthesis, which we discussed before, the, the subject who goes, oh, that's what I wanted. Oh, so that was what this meant, waiting for meaning, signifiers waiting for meaning in the third. Uh, to continue, this is the point they're making. What is serious is that Freud never questions the process of the cure. Of course, it is too late for him, but is it too late for those who come after him? He interprets these things as obstacles to the cure and not as shortcomings of the treatment itself or as effects or counter-effects of his method. For castration as an analyzable state or non-analyzable, the ultimate rock, is the effect of castration or a psychoanalytic act. And Oedipal homosexuality, the qualitative aptitude for conflict, is rather the effect of Oedipalization, which the treatment does not invent, but precipitates and accentuates within the artificial conditions of its exercise transference. And inversely, when flows of libido resist therapeutic practice, rather than being a resistance of the ego, this is the intense outcry of all of desiring production. We already knew that the pervert resisted Oedipalization. Why should he surrender, since he has invented for himself other territorialities, more artificial still and more lunar than that of Oedipus. We knew the schizo was not Oedipalizable because he is beyond territoriality, because he has carried his flows right into the desert. But what remains once we learn that resistances of a historical or an obsessional form bear witness to the Oedipal quality of the flows of desire on the very terrain of Oedipus? That is precisely what quantitative economy shows Flows ooze, they traverse the triangle, breaking apart its vertices. The Oedipal wad does not absorb these flows any more than it could seal off a jar of jam or plug a dike. Against the walls of the triangle, toward the outside, flows exert the irresistible pressure of lava or the invincible oozing of water. This uh, section I really like. Uh, if anyone has questions specifically, I'm happy to go over any part 
uh, we are one paragraph from the end, uh, which is also going to put a very nice fine point on it. But uh, the reason I read it as I did is because that journey, I believe, is important to that section. Uh, as they talk about, here are the here is how analysis works. This is the actual functionality of sitting on a couch. Here's how it's talking. And here's how the analyst and them are interacting. The problem being that sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that. As someone who's been through therapy myself, some of those things strike true in my experience of being the person acting like that. I'm sure I'm not alone in some of that. Um, but again, they're saying, oh, the, the libido's icky slow. It's it's not, it doesn't work. It's like, no, it's because the, the as they say, the edible one does not absorb libido. It's bursting through it. It's not that it's like viscous or other, it's, it's exploding through the triangle, that they traverse the triangle of Oedipus, that they're forcing their way out and they're basically screaming, please, seriously, let me just be a desiring machine, is, is how I take it. I really love these, these few. Um, and that, again, the psychoanalyst on the other side is basically trying to do its best to plug up the libido. And the libido is, like we, as it says, we already know that these people are not Oedipalizable, so what the fuck? <laughs> like you're starting from a weird place. I, I just like this section. I like when they sort of uh, do that mocking bit. Uh, any any comments? Any questions or anything? Last paragraph. We're about to end and uh, just just get shy of uh, at two twenty two thirty. It's nice. And Boskard, actually, that's a really good visual. The the album cover for Pink Floyd's uh, the wall the the prism. It's famous. Everyone should know it. If you don't, pick up the album. Uh, the prism is the triangle and the rainbow is screaming through it. It's, I like that visual. What are the most favorable conditions for the cure? It is asked. A flow that lets itself be plugged by Oedipus. Partial objects that let themselves be subsumed under the category of a complete object. Even if absent, the phallus of castration. Breaks flows that let themselves be projected onto a mythical space. Polyvocal chains that let themselves be biunivocalized, linearized, suspended from a signifier an unconscious that lets itself be expressed, connective syntheses that let themselves be taken in a global and specific use, disjunctive syntheses that let themselves be taken in an exclusive, restrictive use, conjunctive syntheses that let themselves be taken in a personal and segregative use. For what is the meaning of, so that what this meant, the crushing of the so onto Oedipus and castration? The sigh of relief, you, you see, the kernel, the instructor, the teacher, the boss, all of this meant that. Oedipus and castration, all history in a new version. We are not saying that Oedipus and castration do not amount to anything. We are Oedipalized. We are castrated. Psychoanalysis didn't invent these operations, to which it merely lends new resources and methods of the genius. But is this sufficient to silence the outcry? and method, uh, the outcry of desiring production. We are all schizos, we are all perverts, we are all libidos that are too viscous and too fluid, and not by preference, but whatever we have been carried by the deterritorialized flows. What neurotic, provided he is somewhat serious, is not leaning against the rock of schizophrenia, a rock in this case mobile, aerolytic. Who does not haunt the perverse territorialities beyond the kindergartens of Oedipus? Who does not feel in the flows of his desire both the lava and the water? And above all, 
What brings about our sickness? Schizophrenia itself as a process? Or is it brought about by the frantic neuroticization to which we have been delivered and for which psychoanalysis has invented new means? Oedipus and castration. It is schizophrenia as a process that makes us sick, or is it the self-perpetuation of the process in the void, a horrible exasperation, production of this schizophrenic as entity? Or is it the confusion of the process with the goal, the production of the pervert artifice, or the premature interruption of the pro process, the production of the neurotic analysis? We are forcibly confronted with Oedipus and castration. We are reduced to them either so as to measure us against that cross or to establish that we cannot measure up to it. But in any case, the harm has been done. The treatment has chosen the path of edipalization, all cluttered with refuse, instead of the schizophrenization that must cure us of the cure. Yeah, uh, sorry that I'm uh, of a few words today, but um, to, to sum it up, you know, to uh, make the disjunctive uh, synthesis answer to the other poll and everything. Um, to, to put it in clearer words, you know, I like the formulation, but um, if we if we put uh, psychoanalysis as a form, you know, as one device, as one dispositive or apparatus uh, within a political economy, so it, 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 it becomes like a form of disciplining desire into a certain way like not let desire connect as it wants to connect as it wants to produce but to reframe it in a way that you can actually control it and pass it as lack so this is it's a whole process of you know disciplining desire if if everything that we've read i don't know like i don't I, w I wasn't there for the first parts of the reading but just this last little part is just saying that you know we need to organize a symbolic order so we can or answer it into a specific manner but it's not to answer to the symbol or answer to um, anything that is natural or you know um, that is already there it is an order that is being created through this process of disciplining desire for now, we have a few more minutes. Uh, I don't have much else to say because I think it ends clearly. Roger summarized excellently. Anything in this section that you have questions with, please, now would be the time. Uh, really, it's, we're open. Go for it. And I think that's that's that moment, you know, where what the this book can tell you, it's exactly there. To see um, psychology, psychiatry, the medical field, schools, you know, workplace how we force you into organizing yourself into a certain manner and that's the political aspect of it they don't they never say it clearly but this is where you get it so you know if anybody wants to like relate to real world example or their field or you know something that they've seen before or you know if somebody went through uh, psychoanalytic or like you know psychological help or whatever and you know want to share something let's just just go ahead and dive into it uh, feel free to type i mean uh really any any questions or comments we could just discuss as well i'm very open it's just uh either we did an exceptional job the whole way through and it means you guys understood this which would be make me very happy because uh if you go back and this recording will be replacing it. Don't worry. Uh, 
boy, did I not understand this the first time. I was going back through and rereading some of this early stuff. Um, so I'm glad we've made improvements uh, since then, to say the least. Yeah, I just really like um, the entire sort of setup here. Uh, cure us of the cure. It's a there's an old line. Uh, we can protect ourselves against those who would do us ill, but God help us against those who would help us. And I I've always liked that. And it feels like that's the kind of stuff where they're saying like, yeah, this they're trying to help us. God help us that they're trying to help us. It feels like a little bit like that. Cure us of a cure. Um, and it it extends get, over we... because that's the idea of like. I mean, the conservative talking points around capitalism and asceticism inside of economic systems are the same thing where it's like, no, no, this will cure everything. This is going to fix it. It's like, hey, uh, can I get a cure for the cure? Because your shit sucks, dude. <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's a form of domestication of processes, you know, the wild processes like within capitalism or within desire or anything else. You know, we always come with like, you know, political devices to... Uh, format them and make sure that they don't you know uh go over the line too much but um Eris was asking me uh if i could reframe my my invitation on this you know like if somebody went through like a process of like you know uh, psychological help or uh any form of clinical intervention on their psyche or desire you know if there's anything to share on this or you know something that they know they've heard about and uh, i think that that would give us like a real world example of how those processes of domestication of being and desire are acting upon us well so much of the imagery inside of this i just really like the idea of flows of libido being considered viscous or overly liquid and how they're stopping or this or that and um i just i just love this sort of, of overall sort of takedown of freud and his projects and a lot of the stuff that he sort of left behind i really dig it and i mean the good news is where we leave from here, and I can give a little preview of the next uh, month of any of your lives, uh, if you're going to be joining us. From here, we get into literally their answer of how th the unconscious actually functions. Uh, we're going to start with the connective syntheses and move through all the syntheses. And it is a, uh, it's a lot. And it's incredibly important to understand it here. And if you ever intend to actually read A Thousand Plateaus or literally, I think, any of their other works, uh, this is the stuff that really, really matters. Like if there's a foundation to everything, it's kind of what we're getting to here. So um, excellent. So thank all of you for joining us again today. Uh, we're going to stick around for a few minutes, but I'm going to go ahead and end the stream. Uh, thank you, those of you at home who listen to us on the podcast. We're having more and more of you show up, which is great. Uh, those of you on YouTube, we're going to be redoing the YouTube channel. As always, you can find us on Twitter, DGQC on Twitter or on uh, D and GQC, DGQC on Patreon. Uh, of course, you can join us on just Discord and say hi. We're doing movie and game night and we have a bunch of new talks coming. So please join us there. 